how does one measure social impact? What's a, a general way that we can understand that? Yeah, so um, I'll get to that practically how we do it, uh, but in terms of the the lens of well-being and that the framework that we apply is um, we recognise that everyone has different needs and we all have coming from a different background. And so different needs to be in that best position to fulfil our potential. Um, but if we get to that point, that overall um, position of living a life that we value, the measure of that is well-being. Awesome. Well, thanks for joining. I appreciate you being here. Thank you for having me, Luke. So I'd love to hear about um, you and Uber Social and, and your journey and, and what got you to where you are, I guess. I know it's a big question, but somewhere to start, hey? Yeah, okay. Um, always where to start this story. I guess my my background, my professional background was in law and also the military. Mm-hmm. And I, I particularly loved the military. I really kind of felt at home there. Um, but after lots of soul searching, I accepted that um, for me, the military, whilst really necessary, is an unfortunate part of solving social problems. And I re- I wanted to try and be part of solving social problems before they need military intervention. Um, so down at the root cause. So at that point, uh, I somewhat naively crossed over into development um, and I studied my Masters of Development and I worked with charities um, locally and internationally and I was quickly frustrated and quite heartbroken to discover that often at that end end we're just putting a Band-Aid on a much bigger systemic problem Um, and we really need to get all these parts of the system working together if we're going to make progress and help people um, be in a better position so at that point I found myself kind of stuck going you know I I don't think my future's with the military or the law at that end but I'm definitely not a good enough person to work in a charity for the rest of my life and we need people at that end as well so um so I was very lucky at that point to be working um for a small boutique but high-end consulting firm and my two bosses there who are actually my co-founders of Huber Social um, helped me really understand you know, systems thinking so that idea of trying to get all these parts of the system working to make progress on social issues um, and in particular these two gentlemen are very skilled in thinking about measurement or assurance systems um, and I could see that was a big problem or or limitation, particularly in development and the social sector, that often the work that really matters isn't measured. And indeed, there's this, you know, has been this attitude that you can't measure that stuff. So tick the box that the funders want to see, get the money and then go back to what you know makes a difference. Um, And I think that's a big part of why we see issues persist is that we're not funding Um, the things that need to be funded and often the things we are funding are actually driving the wrong sorts of behaviours and and taking us backwards. So that's why we landed on um, that actually measurement is a very powerful tool that could get all parts of the system working together to actually effectively solve social issues. Um, But of course we had to 
first investigate what is the work that really matters and can you actually measure it? Um, so that began our journey over 10 years ago now to really look into how can you measure the stuff that really matters for people to live a great life. Um, and to explore that, we started working with a range of not-for-profits at first, so across um, lots of different social sectors. So we we're working with youth at risk, uh, survivors of childhood sexual abuse, victims of domestic violence, um, and some international development projects too. So really varied in terms of the issues they were addressing. But what we came to recognise is if you work with people, the goal is actually always the same. And that's about putting someone in the best position for them to fulfill their potential and achieve well-being. So then we came to how do you measure it? And, and maybe I'll pause there because we can just keep going. But that's really the, the story that brought me to start Huber Social and why we take a, a well-being approach to measure social impact. That's awesome. And I know it's probably a broad question, but how does one measure social impact? What's a, a general way that we can understand that? Yeah, so um, I'll get to that practically how we do it, uh, but in terms of the the lens of well-being and that the framework that we apply is um, we recognise that everyone has different needs and we all have coming from a different background. And so different needs to be in that best position to fulfill our potential. Um, but if we get to that point, that overall um, position of living a life that we value, the measure of that is well-being. So we recognise the ultimate measure of any uh, intervention or social impact um, initiative is about understanding how have you contributed to people's well-being? Have you overall had a positive shift? Because a lot of uh, approaches around measuring social impact really go, okay, what are the outcomes you're trying to achieve for people? And let's measure them. Um, great, you've achieved positive social impact because we've measured these outcomes. But that comes with an assumption that those are the things that are actually needed or they're the things that um, work to improve people's lives. So we, instead what we're doing, checking, evaluating, is actually are those the outcomes that are necessary to contribute to people's wellbeing. So to measure that, we measure the overall impact in terms of people's um, subjective wellbeing. So that's someone's personal wellbeing, how they're experiencing their life. Because wellbeing is something we experience. It is subjective, ultimately. Um, you can't really hold people up against subjective measures and say, you should be doing better. You know, you have a roof over your head, you know, you're educated, et cetera. Therefore, you're in a higher position of well-being. So, you know, the, the alternative is or, or what we recognise is it needs to be a subjective measure to measure overall well-being. But then we need to understand what do people need to be in the best position so at that point, we're measuring people's level of capability, but also their access to opportunity, because we really need both um, to be able to fulfill our potential. So um, practically what that looks like is we rely on the use of surveys. So to measure subjective well-being, we're usually using a globally recognised question set. It's called the Satisfaction with Life Scale. It just has five questions, and that gives us an overall score for someone's subjective well-being. 
And that's like a lighthouse measure. How are they experiencing their life? And then secondly, um, we're, measuring, we're asking them across those domains of, of capability and access to opportunity, how are you? So do you have hope for the future? How often are you anxious, et cetera? And then we use statistics to identify what are, what are those inputs of capability and opportunity factors have a predictive relationship with that overall score of subjective well-being and that really reveals what are the things that are driving or matter most for people's well-being in their context right now and it, that bit's really i think the most powerful part of the measurement because that helps anyone that's trying to have a positive impact understand how they could do it best and and with those insights you can cross check are those outcomes the right things that should be occurring or is there an opportunity to do something more effectively? And I suppose that you're challenging, and correct me if I'm wrong here, the presumption that science in a controlled environment can determine the outcomes or what's appropriate for someone. And what I mean by that is like if I were to study psychology sometimes, and this could be a bias of mine, I'm just, I'm just sharing my own opinion, Sometimes in studies, it would show in a controlled group, in a controlled environment, what the outcome is. But when we get into the real world, variables ensue, right? Life happens, things happen. And if you want to go to like a tribe or a, um, a caste in India and their life's completely different, there's no controlled environment, it's chaotic, there's things going on. So would you say that you're challenging the assumption that a controlled environment is um, not the end result of what someone's life is like, the quality of their life? Uh, I mean, yeah, absolutely. I don't think, I think we're recognising that life is complex, that you can't just um, do something and expect that that's going to improve people's lives as well. So that's, I guess, the important part of measuring wellbeing is that you are taking a very holistic approach to understanding what's going on in people's lives not just on the outcomes that you want to achieve. So that can, you know, often our results will reveal um, that, you know, yes, maybe you are achieving these outcomes, but these needs aren't being met. And that's why we're not seeing an overall positive shift in wellbeing, because right now, even though you're, say, providing seed and giving them financial literacy training, they need access to water or you've got a very high quality education program, but they need access to nutrition. So, and unless you do that, they won't be able to get the most out of the program that you're providing. So I think in that way, we've built this in a way that accounts for that complexity of life that, you know, we, we're definitely not trying to, yeah. So in that way, definitely challenging that impact can be uh, measured through a control or should be measured or treated like a controlled environment. Got it, got it. And what have you learned about human nature in this whole process? I imagine, you know, being in the military, then going to this sector of, of work, you must have learned some pretty interesting things. Oh, yeah, we have um, we have this understanding in the work that we do because we often um, are fortunate and get to go into different communities and, and different countries. Um, and you can't help but kind of go in and make an assessment based on, our, you know, our cultural norms, et cetera, of what's needed. Like, oh, my goodness, you know, there's no medical centre here or, you know, the domestic violence is a way of life, et cetera. You know, there's terrible things happening here. Um, 
but uh, we have our our uh, sorry our concept I guess is that we we talk as you have to be able to suspend your own world belief or your um, own perspective and just hold space for whatever is going on and and then often when the findings come back they may not make sense to us as an outsider um, there's a one of my earlier projects where I spent a couple of weeks in a slum community in Bangalore in India and um, just that happened where you know after observing what it was like the mafia kind of ran that community um, everyone really uh, existed on tomato chutney there was a lot of illness etc and I you know I thought in terms of the priority needs they're going to be what I consider basic fundamental human rights that haven't been met um, but when the results came back, they were things like access to water and nutrition. So that wasn't surprising. But the third finding was um, problem solving skills. So that was a priority need. And I, I said to the statisticians at the time, no, that must be wrong. <laughs> um, do it again. I've been there. Like that can't be a priority need. And they said, no, it's actually you no know, that um, got a very strong correlation with with overall well-being, subjective well-being. But when we take, took those results back to the community, they were able to validate that and say, no, absolutely. Um, and I'll probably, I am going to oversimplify, you know, what was going on there. But what they're able to convey to me is really the history of the caste system there that disempowered people, removed at least their feel, well, removed their agency, has landed these people in a, a position of kind of hopelessness and that they can't, um, uh, they can't solve problems in their lives when faced with it. Um, and that has a big impact on their overall well-being. So th those sorts of findings continually kind of blow my mind um, about, yeah, human behaviour. Um, and there's actually, there's a really beautiful uh, example of that too that I experienced in, um, we do some work over in northern Uganda. And we had a set of questions. So we were at this stage just um, doing like a pilot and checking that the questions that made sense for the communities were asking it to. Um, and there was a set of questions uh, about, you know, how if people had fear, if they were anxious and how much they worried. And my concern was will we be able to like explain the difference between those three things that could if you oversimplified translation, the nuance might get lost. Um, but that wasn't the issue. And when we were asking the women, we had a translator with us. Um, they came to the question on, um, I worry. And they all seemed very confused by that. So I was kind of going, what's going on? And what the issue was, we we asked questions on a Likert scale. And if if somebody worried a lot, it was a sad face at one end of the scale. And if you don't worry, it's a smiley face. That That's seems good to us. Um, and what they were confused about is they were saying, yes, I worry a lot, but I, that it means I'm in a good position. I should be smiling. And they explained to me that coming through, again, a history of civil war where they had nothing, they had no worries. And so to worry was a privilege and meant you're in a good position. And that kind of just floored me. Like to worry is a privilege. And yeah, so I think that we continually just kind of learn um, 
learn those sorts of things and also just how privileged we are. But yeah, that were that was an amazing example. I think we spoke about this on our call before we we had this conversation and um there's something called the adaption principle it keeps coming up my mind and it talks about you know humans ability to adapt to certain things and environments and and whatnot and Jonathan Hyatt in his book the the happiness hypothesis he talks about this and he says there's a select few things that humans can't adapt to and mm-hmm. one of those he says is a lack of control mm-hmm. now an example of this right and i'm paraphrasing a study here they had two sets of groups of people, um, uh, older people who were living in a nursing home and they gave them the choice to either um, choose where the plants and things went in the room or um, that it was done for them. And they measured their happiness over time. And the ones that could control where things go showed to be, it was a ridiculous amount of more, more happy than the other people, right? Happiness, well-being, I, I know they're probably different, but um, the happiness overall was, was uh, vastly improved. So I, I wonder, like, um, what seems to me that, you know, in this, in the uh, India example that you gave, that people, they find a way to get back into control, right? And I don't mean control in like a, you know, I want to control the situation. I mean, in the sense of like feeling autonomy. Like I'm, if I can't control my environment around me, I'm control how I solve problems. I'm control this. Has that been your experience of people? Yeah, again, even in the Uganda example, uh, I know findings have often been um, the biggest shifts have been that they've been able to make decisions in their home or in their community and how that correlates with well-being as well. So, again, just that, you know, we might call it empowerment, but that sense of control over your life. And, yeah, if you lose control, um, yeah, I can imagine... I, mean, I think we probably all feel that a little bit with different aspects of our lives too, like when you're under financial pressure and things and the Reserve Bank is trying to interest things. Yeah, that feels a bit out of control and that creates stress in our life. So, um, yeah, that that's definitely something we've seen in our findings as well. There's also weirdly as well, which is not that weird when you think about it, but one of the things was um, consistent noise, like repeating noise like people who live next to um, like pedestrian crossing where it makes that noise like the doom, 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 like that was something that people couldn't live with and Could? the quality couldn't, couldn't like it decreased the quality of their life. This is what the study showed. And also what was it? Commuting. Like people don't get used to it. They don't adapt to commuting like every single day. Like it's a slog, um, which is, I find that interesting because I think that maybe in these studies, they didn't like account for people's capacity to do things about that if that makes sense like mm. um you know like people would go and buy like thicker windows or something like that to block the noise or to listen to a podcast on the way to work and things like that i think it's just that one thing if that makes sense yeah or i wonder if the study itself made them aware of that and they were like yeah i can hear that every day that is really you know and it becomes a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy in that way maybe that's not yeah. right but yeah just the the study itself could have brought that um yeah realization too <laughs> we'll always wonder with studies like that you know because it's it's so hard to uh like i said the controlled group of people doing a controlled thing obviously all states are different i get it like there's complexities i'm not mentioning here but it's like when we take someone out of their natural environment unnatural things happen if that makes sense and from what i've seen 
um, like going into communities and what I've heard stories about, I haven't done it myself, but um, people tell me about going to communities and things, things are very different to how they ought to be or how they should be. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure if there's any examples that come to mind of that, but um, yeah, I guess uh, kind of experienced that in my own life as well, but hmm, yeah. So I wanted to ask what, what is, and this is a, a very, uh, simple question but I think it's relevant for anyone listening and for myself as well what is well-being Mm. so we define that as being in a state where you can live a life that you value so I'm really putting an emphasis on the the subject I guess on you on and it's not something that should be the inputs of it can't really ever be set we can't say you know if people go meet A, B, C, D, E, F, they're in a high position of well-being, which generally is how we measure well-being. If you look at, um, we have different indexes in Australia um, uh, or even in New Zealand, they have the living standards framework and they're saying, you know, if we're high on all of this, we're in a better position of well-being. Certainly, you know, studies reveal different things can be consistent inputs to well-being but trying to lock it down into a set list I think is um, is limiting and also doesn't reveal the nuances of what matter to people in different contexts so yeah it's it's not an emotion it's not happiness it is just being in a state where you've got the capability and the opportunity to live a life that you value and you're also able to weather the storms of life. So it's not about being happy all the time. Um, and, th- yeah, that's really how we understand well-being um, is that more that holistic state of functioning. Mm. And do you feel like if everyone, like let's say, for example, it's a scale of zero to 100, you know, and and let's say everyone in the world was on, a, on 99 out of 100 in well-being because sometimes it's impossible to get to 100. Do you feel like there would be war with if countries? In a high position of well-being. Yeah. Uh, I can't see how there would be room for it so much, no, because I think, um, I mean, wars come about for all sorts of different reasons, but they often endure and are fed by um, people that have been disadvantaged and left behind and then they become vulnerable to maybe extreme ideologies or or other things and they become kind of pawns in the game of war so if you can you know that's why a lot of countries and governments around the world invest so much in development is you know to stabilize communities and get them in a better position so that they're not um, vulnerable to be taken advantage of um, and and that that doesn't create conflict and unrest. So um, I think that's yeah, well-being to to me is definitely the answer to that. And the only difference in there is, I guess I'm on a bit of a personal mission to I hate the word development because that does imply that somebody's coming in and someone needs to be developed. Um, and that's why I prefer, you know, using well-being because it's well if we can put someone in a position that they value and the things that are important to them and they're in a good position of well-being um then they they won't be vulnerable to um to all sorts of different influences and and um 
yeah, whether that's war or crime or anything else. So, yeah, I think well-being is the answer to being able to end war. Mm. Because if you look at history, right, when, you know, World War One happened, World War Two wouldn't have occurred unless World War One happened. And World War One wouldn't have happened unless, uh, you know, the 1870 Franco-Prussian War happened. So everything that, and this is, I think, one of the flaws in human thinking, or, and also one of the benefits, right, we, we need it, is that we often singulate, uh, singularize or uh, specifies an event in isolation right things exist in parallel with each other and through my own studies of you know history and looking at the world wars and reading about some of the characters and the figures in that war um, that were huge proponents of it and who initiated it um, and the response to that it 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 works in conjunction with the past right it leads on from one thing to another to another to another and and then also world war ii led to obviously i'm generalizing here myself speaking about generalizing human humans being general about timelines um the other wars then occurred off that you know conflict creates conflict it's like the old saying hurt people hurt people because everything you know affects each other yeah exactly yep i think also the power in taking a well-being mindset or using that as opposed to development or even just like crisis focused and building more weapons, et cetera, is that it's um, it's flipping from a deprivation mindset where, you know, I had this experience in Uganda again. Um, we'd go for runs in the morning before we'd go to work and running along and a, a, a guy from the community joined me and, his run, and we're just having a lovely chat. And I can't remember what comment I made that led to it, but he ended up saying, oh, yeah, because we're just poor Africans, as in, you know, like, because we don't, we're not, yeah, we don't have money, but we're, we're something less. And I just thought, oh, God, like, that is the damage that development has done, you know, like, a lot of these communities are flooded with international aid agencies and, you know, with, you know, wearing shirts that say, you know, I, I feel, I don't want to, um, there's... <laughs> They do lots of good work, but things like save the children and things, it's like someone's coming in to save your children, you know, and it's this this like, this reinforcing that they're less and the disempowerment that happens because of that. So well-being is more a strength-based thing where it's saying, you know, it's able to highlight what's important and what people are strong in in different aspects and different contexts and that it's not just development which is typically about economic development as well so um yeah I think I think that's another important aspect of using or how we can address social issues and um is is changing the language from something that's deprivation to something that's strength-based and empowering Mm, I love that language is huge Mm. so what have you um in your own like personal life what have you how's this changed your perspective on how you see the world like Mm. I can imagine it would massively no question um one thing that it's funny when we started this 10 years ago and we you know we came up with our framework and we started measuring it and I, I kind of couldn't quite believe that you know, what, I mean, we always, we're not saying we've landed on the perfect tool. We, we're really open to improving it. 
but yeah so not having and I think that's a good thing is that we don't have I don't have full faith in what we have is like the end answer so I'm all, I was always reflecting like the way we're measuring well-being is that right is that true but mm. over the years as we've used the tools on ourselves um practice what we've preached um observed like in the early years of starting Cuba you know you've got you're so excited you've got so much purpose and um you know your your income and all your safety nets can kind of be stripped back but you're so like you're living your purpose and that sustained my well-being well beyond that you know despite my kind of my situation of being stressed and having no income um and all sorts of other things that come with running a small business um and I just realized like I was like wow you know this this tool actually is really powerful because particularly the subjective well-being so much stuff can be going but it takes some pretty big things to to shift that it's not something that is super dynamic and so I was like I feel like we are in that way you know that personal validation of how we're measuring it was really good um but yeah then seeing that it got to a point that the purpose alone couldn't sustain me and I needed the relationships that I'd lost because I was you know spending every weekend just working on it late into the night etc and and that got to a point where that couldn't be maintained and so I moved back to Western Australia where my family was and that kind of topped back up so just seeing how at least personally different drivers held so much more weight over other aspects of well-being Mm. so um yeah I think that that's been one reflection over this time of what I've taken from it and how it's changed or confirmed my view um yeah I'm trying to think what else of it has it made me think um I think the other big thing is um we so often when we go into communities that have less things physically economically um I more so in the early days, was really nervous going in and measuring beyond those things, you know, measuring well-being, measuring all the stuff that, you know, (laughs) we often think in a Western point of view are the wishy-washy soft stuff. And, um, like, when I first would go into communities in Uganda and and remote communities in Australia and things, thinking these people are going to tell me, stop wasting my time I, you know I need income to, I want to send my kids to school I need better food why are you asking about hope and why are you asking me about you know community connection and things like that um but again that you know I remember being brave enough to ask that and say you know do you think we're measuring the right stuff you're like are these the things that matter to you and being expected to be kind of shown the door and be told that these are the most important things and I guess learning that, you know, when we don't have uh, all the comforts of a good life, um, you know, all the conditions of a physically good life, I should say, that those things, our relationships, our hope, our spirituality, are the things that sustain us. And when you go into communities where they haven't had some of the privileges, um, they've lived that and they've they know the value of those things and so um it's it's just kind of mind-boggling when 
you know, we talk with politicians and things here and, you know, they're so bent on financial and economic measures as the things that are the most important. Um, and, and it's, you know, we know that that's one input and that's one aspect, but that's not everything to live a good life. Um, and it's also, we need to account for the other things if we're going to sustain those economic benefit, economic outcomes as well. So, yeah, I think that's another big takeaway from the, the years of measuring well-being um, and seeing what truly matters uh, mm. people. And then, you know, living through the pandemic, we all got the opportunity to feel that as well as, you know, what were the things that sustained us? What are the things that are really important in life? Um, so, yeah, I think, and that's why we're seeing, you know, all of a sudden this acceleration because um, people everywhere experience that on a personal level. And so mm. people start to, you know, bring that into their decision-making of who they work for, who they invest in, you know, who they vote for. They want to see that, you know, things are changing and and that, um, yeah, we're accounting for more than just growth. Yeah, and I imagine the push for economic growth has created a split in the everyday man and woman, which is um, that we've lost touch with the immaterial, you know, like so much of us mm -hmm. as animals, right? And I say animals intentionally because we are animals, is the... Uh, immaterial it's the spiritual it's the connection it's the um the intangibles you know and i feel like as a civilization especially western to use very generally but more specifically high income western countries like where i am sydney you know the coast of australia and whatnot we've lost touch with that you know it's like we we pursue uh yeah economic success at the expense of our own mental health and we clearly know it's not good for us right and um and we've all done this well i mean we haven't all but i've personally done it like and it's and when you create a connection with um yeah when you build relationships and when you create that spiritual connection with something you know i'm not saying anything specifically like for me it's just it's like listening to a and someone who's you know religious might say oh no this that's not spiritual but to me it is right you can't define what's spiritual for me but in my case it's you know putting on some classical music and then just like feeling all the music, you know, it's that intimate connection with someone. It's that conversation. It's that, that depth, you know, it's the, the laughter, the fun, you know, those kind of things are hard to measure. You know, you can't hook your brain up, at least not right now to, you know, measure the serotonin in your brain. Even if you could do that, I don't think it'd be a good measure. So yeah, I really hear that. I think that, that we've lost that in, in Western countries. Yeah. And I, I mean, I will say this because I would say this, I should say, because I have an organisation that measures well-being, but I really think being able to measure those things and bring them into decision-making is how we can start to change the system because at the moment it feels a bit overwhelming. It feels like, you know, we. I feel like everyone kind of knows this, that, you know, we the way we're living, that we're so busy and that we, you know, we get wrapped up in our work and we don't have time for our friends. And then, you know, it's funny because we spend so much time trying to plug the gaps that we're causing through our busy lifestyle, you know, well, how can I, um, you know, connect back with nature? I'll, I'll pay for this one course or something, you know, as if that will kind of fix something that's actually, you know, we need to change our way of life. But yeah, so we get that. 
and it's quite overwhelming it's like well how I'm kind of caught up in this big machine so how do I change it and I do think that through measuring well-being and bringing these things into decision making that that starts to change and shape the system and things hopefully can kind of slow down and give us that time and that space back you know, it's it's probably a bit of a, it is a big journey to go on. One, it's like recognising that we have a problem. Yeah. <laughs> and then, you know, you can slowly start to control it in your own world, but then there are things happening that make it really tricky, you know, like most families, has both people have to be working to be able to, you know, afford to live now. So mm-hmm. that creates challenges and you can't just all of a sudden, you know, say, okay, we'll go to a single income um so yeah I I think like I just don't want to kind of sit here and lament and go ah we're in this like this um whirlwind and we can't get off even though we want to I think like I want to be hopeful in that and go well what can we do and how are we changing it um and yeah I I kind of laugh at myself because I remember when in the early days we were like measurement you know it's measurement and I was like oh God, how boring. Um, <laughs> but I think it's really powerful. And and I'm also the first person to really think through and challenge of um can we measure all that stuff? Like and and will we ever be able to do that, those things justice? Um, maybe not, but we can certainly get closer to measuring things that matter for our lives beyond economic growth, and therefore we should. Um and there's great examples of where doing that really is changing things at a systems level. So we recently in Australia had a visit from the Future Generations Commissioner from the Welsh Government. Um, and this, uh, her position, sorry, she she's now the former, there's a new um there's a new commissioner, but the Welsh Government created this position. So they have a well-being. Uh, economy or a well-being framework um, and they actually have that set in legislation so how they went about developing that was massive deep consultation of the Welsh population of what matters to them and they landed on oh I think it was seven domains and now when government considers policy decisions or budget allocations, they have to look at the options through the lens of these seven domains. I hope it's seven. That's Sorry. right. Sorry, Commissioner. And they have to, they the option they pick has to be the one that maximizes those seven domains. That's incredible. Uh, it's incredible. Incredible. And um, uh, Sophie Howe is the uh, former future commissioner, uh, future generations commissioner from Wales and she spoke about you know that most of her job for the last few years has actually been kind of unpicking the mechanics of government and rewiring it to enable those decisions so it's not just about getting that framework you know because governments are working on that election cycle and stuff like that they but to actually be able to enforce those decisions they're going to have to make decisions that may be unpopular, particularly with, say, big businesses or things that wield a lot of power. So they had to, like, rewire government um, uh, to be able to actually um, be empowered to make those decisions. And she she wielded, the the Future Generations Commission in Wales, wields a lot of power. They actually can halt laws and um, 
they uh, in her time she put a um, monitorium on building any new roads in Wales and instead they looked at or they created options about creating active travel etc so just you know that change is happening you know and it's it's amazing and we're really lucky to have her in, here in Australia and I hope the Australian government was listening <laughs> to what's well, hot it's hard as well, right? Because that kind of change isn't, you know, four years, five years. It's like, we're talking 20, 30 years, right? At least. Yeah. Although I think her tenure, oh gosh, I, I'm terrible and I can't remember the details. Like she achieved an incredible amount in maybe, I feel like five years. Mm. Um, so anyway, we've started that journey with the announcement of in the federal budget last year to begin measuring what matters um so we'll just see we're kind of waiting with bated breath uh, which direction how kind of how our government goes about that because there's lots of different ways that they could achieve that but yeah we're we're seeing that change happen mm. Yeah. Mm. that's super fascinating and I want to ask as well um have you interviewed or spoken to any existing hunter-gatherer tribes oh and uh, no not hunter-gatherer mm. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's all right. So I, um, a few months ago, actually almost uh, nine months ago, uh, in October last year, I was uh, researching um, uh, around zoocosis, right? Zoocosis is um, when an animal goes into captivity and by animal, I mean like a tiger, monkey or anything like that. When they go to captivity, they experience what's called zoocosis, which is, um, they're out of the natural environment. Um, they start to like, they start to like, uh, self-mutilate. They start to like rock like that. They start to do, um, like bite themselves, you know, pick at their skin, um, stuff like this. Right. And, um, I read a book at the time, which was, um, what was it called? Uh, it's around gut health and bacteria and things like that. And, it got me thinking about like humans and what's their natural environment. Like, so you mentioned that you're measuring, you know, uh, as you could say, different countries, different well-being, different countries and different areas, specific areas. I wonder, um, and I'll, I'll tell you why I wonder this, but I wonder if we as humans are experiencing our own version of zoocosis. Mm -hmm. Now, what I mean by that is we've been so like, so animals, I mean, some are born in captivity, but some animals have been taken out of their natural environment and put into captivity. They experience these symptoms, right? But eventually your captivity becomes your home and you have these symptoms that perhaps aren't normal, right? Mm -hmm. So you look at the mental health issues, you know, you could say there's a, a number of causes for that. But I wonder if the, the core granular problem is that we're living outside of what is natural to us and we think it's normal to us because we're used to it but really how we're supposed to live is somewhat akin. Again, it's very general because each country had a different style of hunter and gathering, but we're supposed to live in alignment with this hunter gatherer lifestyle. And to add to that, there's a, a, bacter a bacterial strain called Lactobacillus reteri, right? There's been studies done to show that uh, I think it's 91 or even maybe as high as 96, either one of those two of Western population doesn't have this strain called Lactobacillus reteri. And it's been lost through the advent of um, overusing antibiotics, um, modernization, you know, the foods that we eat, emulsifiers, things like that. 
And this bacteria, right, it's responsible or it assists in the process of, uh, if, if it's not present, I should say, it decreases oxytocin. Oxytocin is the chemical known for us to want to create connection, um, to have empathy, to hold empathy. And something like 91 to 96% of people no longer have this bacteria in their mm. stomach, right? So one would assume, and again, like the science is still emerging on this, but one would assume that if from our modern diet and modern living, we've lost this bacteria and therefore it's led to us even three to 4% less wanting to be compassionate or empathetic. Hey, measure that. I don't know. Then one would assume that, and they measured hunter-gatherer tribes that exist today and they have this bacteria in their stomach. So I wonder how much of our suffering as humans comes from not the attempt to uh, modernize, but rather the attempt to come back to who we really are. Mm. Yeah, I know that's really insightful. I, I feel like that's all stuff that I've uh, thought about. It's really great to hear that there's science to kind of back that up. I feel like, you know, probably if we're honest with ourselves, that resonates with all of us, I would think. I shouldn't make that assumption. But, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That's really insightful. Mm. I mean, something's going on, isn't it, with, with the, uh, all the different diagnoses and all the different diseases that are occurring. Um, you know, what is causing that? What, why is all these things on the rise? Um, Autoimmune diseases, massively. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, there's something else as well. There's something known as old friend bacteria. And old friend bacteria, um, if I'm not mistaken, it's three different combinations of bacteria are found in our natural environment, right? So in the dirt, um, on animals, um, by animals, I mean dogs, horses, things like that, um, you know, uh, just being in the dirt, right? Mm. This uh, old friend bacteria, these three strains, um, we have less exposure to them. And they've shown, and I can send you the papers on this, it's very comprehensive. They've shown that people immigrating over to uh, Western countries, like Australia, like America, um, the first generation um, experienced more autoimmune diseases and more inflammation in the body, which leads, leads to various things, than those who stayed in their original country. Mm. And they found that because of urbanization. People weren't spending as much time in, in the dirt. Like if, <laughs> if humans were to spend uh, in nature what animals naturally do, like, you know, picking up dirt and like some babies even put over their face and whatever. I'm not saying to do that. I'm just, I'm just saying, I'm making an observation. Mm. Then we don't get exposure to these bacterias, right? And this inflammation, right? It can lead to depression. It leads to autoimmune diseases. And this paper shows this very comprehensively. Um, and that's another thing as well. Hence why I'm talking about zucosis. It's like we're in this captivity and we're, we're uh, over hygienic in a way. Um, like we're afraid of germs. Like, you know, oh, germs, you know, but we need germs because that's where the old friend bacteria are found amongst other things. Right. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's a conversation I have with my husband a fair bit because in our family, we have the spectrum of people that were all for germs and those that aren't. So um, my lovely mother-in-law is like super hygienic, very clean, loves antibacterials. My father <laughs> um his hygiene levels uh leave a lot to be desired like I remember living with him 
um, and seeing him just lick his plate and put it on the clean rack of the. <laughs> oh, that's awful. But he really believes in the value of germs. So I'm somewhere between the two. But yeah, we um working out what's going to work for our little one. And yeah, I I'm more of the because of my upbringing, <laughs> definitely roll in the dirt, eat the dirt, all of that. Um, you're reminding me too, though, of another study uh, that links, you know, it, that looked into diseases and also the power of our subjective mind. So uh, hence coming back to, you know, why measuring subjective well-being actually is, you know, is the indication of our well-being because science has now started to prove that our subjective mind um, will actually influence our physical health. Um, I I kind of thought that was obvious, but um, <laughs> now they've actually got science of that. And there there was, you know, a, a, the one about the monkeys that was that showed that as well as like when they were left alone and isolated, their health deteriorated. But if put kind of with other monkeys, they could recover really quickly. Um, but also in terms of our diseases, they say you know like all our main diseases actually. Are, start kind of 10 years back which is a, a set of three cells that if inflamed for 10 years lead to like our major diseases wow. um, that the subjective your subjective state of mind can influence that inflammation as well so people with like chronic loneliness more prone to chronic diseases um Whereas, you know, people can endure in, you know, war-torn countries and be exposed to incredible amount of pressure from external factors. But again, if they have things like purpose and will to live, that can keep them in a, a very positive subjective state of mind that keeps all these the inflammation markers at bay. So it was just like this other kind of um, science coming at it to say why you know, measuring subjective well-being is actually a really important indicator of well-being because subjective well-being can actually influence our, our physical being as well. And, and we all know that from experience, right? And for me, like I went through chronic health issues, like, I mean, chronic to the point of, uh, how would you put it? Um, on a scale of 0 to 10, I'm feeling like 0 0.5 out of 10, oh, right? Man. Like, oh, yeah, yeah. Like to the point, like, I don't know if I'm going to live today. I don't know if I'm going to survive. And I remember having my phone next to me and having like ready to call emergency in case something happened. But I had, yeah, like I really went through it. Like I've never, um, it was like, uh, it literally felt like hell, you know? And I, the thing for me was I had multiple gut health issues. Um, and, and, you know, like I don't eat that bad. Like, sure. I, you know, this is probably part of it as well, right? Like when I was younger, I had really bad social anxiety. And I didn't know how to deal with that. So I just started drinking. I would drink to, to feel that connection with people. It's like I, when I was sober, I felt like, oh, I really want to just talk to this person, but I just can't. I can't communicate who I am. And I feel like I'm not heard. And so I'm like, this is like this compressed part of me. It's like I need to speak. I need to talk. And drinking gave me that, mm -hmm. right? And later on, I learned that there is a, a third nervous system that contributes to your social engagement, right? And there's actually things that, that affect that. Long story short, like I, so I started drinking, started partying, all these things and, and did lots of things that you shouldn't do. Um, but it really affected, I'd say my gut health. But outside of that, 
from 2018, I quit drinking, quit alcohol. Um, and up to that point, I hadn't really done much. 2017, 2017 actually. And um, long story short, I last year, um, a lot of stressful things happen and as, as life happens. And um, I got to a point where I was living in a house that had mold in it, which really affected it. I was, um, my gut was feeling funny all the time. I wake up after about an hour of sleep and I just couldn't get back to sleep. My stomach just felt really like weird. I would eat foods. I'd start spinning out like when I ate the foods. Mm. Um, yeah, it was one time where I had like a hallucination and I don't know where it came from, but I was sitting in my room as a kid from like, I know, 20 something years ago. And I'm like, what am I doing here? I'm like, and I got back to reality. I'm like, whoa, that's scary. So yeah, it was, it was, it was uh, torture. I felt like torture. But, you know, the body keeps score, right? The body, body's trying to tell you something. I think, you know, that's my, that's me creating meaning out of it, right? So I went and saw someone um, who did what's called a GI mapping test. And they found that my villi, which is the, like the, the, these shaped things where the food goes into, um, was inflamed. Uh, my mucus, my gut lining was uh, compromised. It was damaged. I had an overgrowth of a bad bacteria, uh, two bad bacterias. And also my good bacterias were disproportionate to my bad ones. So it was dysbiosis. So I'd eat foods and then the food particles wouldn't properly digest. So then the food would go, uh, like the food particles, like say peptides, whatever they are, um, would go into my bloodstream. Then my body would attack them, hence autoimmune, right? So I had leaky gut and it's been now, I've been on this gut healing journey, health journey, and there's other things as well, which I can go into detail about if you're interested, but it's been five months now. And I've gone from like 0.5 to like, feel like three uh, down to like one up to five, down to four, up to six, seven. And as of today, I feel, you know, somewhat normal. And the reason I'm sharing this about loneliness, because when you feel 0.5 out of 10, you can barely do anything, even four out of 10, even three out of 10. So mm -hmm. I'm like wanting to connect with people, wanting to build relationships and go out and have fun and do all these things and also wanted to work and, and have purpose and meaning. But I couldn't do it. I didn't have the wherewithal to do it. And that that affected that as well. And it's like this this cyclical thing of like uh, inflammation in my body. But safe to say, I, I got more out of it in the end, slowly. Yeah, wow. Yeah, what a story. So yeah, you've definitely lived that um mind body connection um in a big way and and they think they it kind of goes both ways right like i know got brain access yeah exactly you know I, i'm there talking about how subjective mind uh shapes our physical health but yeah the, all the studies on our gut health shaping our our mental health as well so yeah well that's good you've come through it and all the things you've learned from it um oh yeah yeah, I had to really like look myself in the mirror. And there was one day there where, you know, when you're feeling like that, you start to get a bit resentful. You start to get a bit like, why me? You know, like, and that's kind of the breeding ground of, 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 uh, to a degree, like hatred. Like, it's like, why me? But then I just looked at myself in the mirror. Quite literally, I'm like, what did I do to get myself in this position? Like, if I'm really honest with myself. Like, and I'm, I'm quite good at like, like taking responsibility for stuff. But I'm like, no, no, like looking back on your life, like, uh, there's a book called The Archipelago by Alexander Social Nitschen, and he went to the gulags in Russia um, for nothing. He didn't do anything wrong, so he thought. And he's like, I'm here. I can't do anything about it. I'm here for life, essentially. Um, 
I'm going to assess every single part of my life and look at how I got myself here. And what he came across is that I told lies here and there that led to more lies and the Russian people all lied to each other because of Stalin. And then like, you know, he didn't say that, but that's just my assumption, what he said. But basically his thing was that we all got ourselves to the place that we're in to a degree. Um, and it's hard to say that as well because you're born into bad circumstances. I get that. But he mm -hmm. said that you can look at where you are and you can start to take responsibility for that. So I sat there and I'm like, what have I done? I'm like, well, like I want to do this all myself. I wouldn't take the support of a, a, like a nutritionist. I wouldn't do that because I'm like, I can find the answers. I can read the books. I didn't trust people, you know. Um, I, I drank a lot when I was young. I didn't take responsibility for that, you know. And um, the stress, I wasn't managing my stress properly. I'd keep pushing my body. So I really looked at all the areas in my life where I was, where I was doing that. And that's where I kind of made that change. That's where it all started from. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's something amazing. Um, Mm. I think the positive out of that, um, coming back to interesting points conversation based off my back wall. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's a book up there. Have you read Anti-Fragile by Nicholas? Uh, um, I've read I've read his other book. I've read his uh, uh the Black Swan or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um or well, anti-fragile, like the premise of it is you know that we shouldn't be trying to um like monocle ourselves and like uh risk manage ourselves out of it that you know the the ultimate system is an anti-fragile system where we expose ourselves a bit to um adversity um you know you look at uh um vaccinations etc on that premise you know uh expose yourself to a little bit of adversity and then you grow and build from that to overcome it and so that's the ultimate you know stop he really hates the word risk management um uh and it's all about being anti-fragile so I think yeah through all of that yeah not to beat yourself up and more um look at the strengths that you've come uh that have come from that experience as well so yeah massive I love that anti-fragile <laughs> building like an anti-fragile gut <laughs> Yeah, and a life as well, right? I mean, there's yeah. certain things, certain questions, certain things you can say and do to to mm. uh, get yourself there. So but I want to ask uh, two last questions. Um, mm. The second last one is, uh, if there were any lessons, principles, um, things people could learn from all the data, all the things you've researched, all the situations you've seen in your work, I know there's a lot of them. Um, is there any lessons for the individual that they can take into their life? Like, um, any anything that they can do or change based on what you've seen and, and how, how you've seen the world? Oh, that's a big question. Um, one thing, and, and we didn't discover this finding, but our, our continued measurement always reveals this as a, a priority need or a top predictor of well-being is connection, is relationships. So, you know, we are, um, we are social beings and we need that um, to, to thrive. So I think the importance of investing in our personal relationships, um, uh, that has come through um, and that's certainly been the thing that sustained me and, um, yeah, changed, kept me going over the last 10 years of embarking on this journey with Huber. So yeah, I think that's that's a key finding. Um 
any other lessons from our measurement? It's uh, it's a hard one. I don't. It's really at the moment all our projects are like sector by sector or or project by project really. And it was just this morning that we've just looked at how much data we collected in the last twelve months alone, and we've measured the well-being of nine thousand people across four countries. And we haven't put that all together because, you know, there's reasons why you wouldn't, that might not necessarily um, reflect a very balanced sample, even if you just look at the data in Australia. However, saying that, I'm like, please can we do that? Because I want to see if there are findings that emerge. Um, and then probably just the final lesson or, or insight that we've distilled is, um, if I simplify it from like a uh, more remote um, communities versus like Western developed com um, communities and sectors, some of the factors that always emerge as really high, um, regardless of their circumstances, uh, there's two is I like who I am and my life is important. So we don't see that in say um, in Western developed sectors but we see that in more remote communities and um I hate using the word but undeveloped communities mm. as well in the global south so I think like that's just that's just remarkable and like what yeah that we've at the moment kind of mainstream society it's something that's really suffering is our self-belief and our self-love um and so I don't really have the answer to that, but they're the kind of findings and insights that we've drawn out that, yeah, definitely food for thought and and make us pause and reflect um, and and start to address that. I like those two questions. Do I, is it, do I like myself? Yeah, it's like, well, it's on a scale. So we ask the question, I like who I am and yep. my, um, my life is important. And then people rate it out of one to seven. So mm. we first started asking that in the community in northern Uganda and we just couldn't believe, it. you know, everything that's going on, those two always report high. And then we've seen that come through other communities as well. Um, yeah, I just think that's so powerful as a statement. Um, and, and it's, you know, from their point of view, they're like, yeah, of course, like, why wouldn't you? What, what, mm. like they think they're kind of silly questions as my life is important of course it is like whereas um I think it's something we struggle a lot more with in a western society mm. it feels like that might be or is that so so with what we're exposed to you know where we're always comparing and and everything else so mm. maybe it's a powerful two questions to ask like you write it yourself write down and then yeah. then start to uncover what it is like what what don't I like about myself because we all don't like things about ourselves it's like great well, how can I put them in order you know or how can I let go of order sometimes so I think that's uh two really mm -hmm. powerful things there so well I appreciate you coming on um last question where can people learn more about you yeah best place to start is just on their website so hubersocial.com.au um and there's lots of other publications and articles on there. And then, of course, they can, through that website, reach out to us directly. And we have a ever-growing community of uh, our consultants, um, but also just friends of Huber, so people that are interested in measuring well-being and, and social impact measurement. 
And we really treat that as like an open learning community um, where we all kind of grow and learn from each other. So yeah, encourage people to get in contact and we can add you to that community. Awesome. Thank you so much. I appreciate you coming on. Thanks, Luke. Thank you.